0: flag flies through center, gloved down by Reinhardt. Reinhardt was alone, so he decided not to enter until he's got some reinforcements, and then he finds his way in. Reinhardt changing sides to the ice for Lundell. Return to Reinhardt right in front, he scores!
1: Welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast My name is Steve Bennett This is Season 13, Episode 9 of the show It's May 9th, 2023 On the show today, two debuts Jack Curry from the S-Network is going to join us And Kirk McKnight, uh, the author of a book called The Voices of Baseball Is going to join us as well Curry, of course, is the author of a book I've been reading Called The 1998 Yankees So, two authors Two authors And guys who are also involved in sports media in other ways, they'll make their debuts. We'll talk to Jack Curry first in a second, and we'll talk to Kirk McKnight later. We'll do a book club update. We'll do one last thing. And um, before we get to any of that, let's start with first things first. I wanted to say congratulations to Chicago Blackhawks fans, including my buddy Zach and Greg, still waiting on the project from those fellas. But when it comes, I'll tell you about it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Look at. The Chicago Blackhawks won the NHL draft lottery on Monday night. They had an 11.5% chance to do so. It's their first first overall pick since 2007 when they drafted Patrick Kane. They also drafted Jonathan Taves, third overall. And those two guys were on the team up until the trade deadline. And next year, having not played without them, they'll w- welcome Connor Bedard. So it's kind of like the Packers going from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers, uh, which is very nice. They had an 11.5% chance to get it, third best. Uh, Anaheim finished second. Anaheim also finished second in the City Crosby uh, lottery, which sucks. But Adam Fantilli is an awesome dynamic player if they want to take him. The kid from Russia who's unfortunately under contract through the 2025-26 season. Um, but is an unbelievable player as well. If you want to wait a couple of years, and sometimes look at you wait on these guys anyway. I mean, other than Bedard and probably two other players, maybe three, uh, most of these guys are going to be in junior next year or in their college teams or whatever. You know, the Sabres drafted first overall a couple of years ago, and he went back to college, went back to Michigan. Uh, so that happens. Not everyone is generational. In the draft, Bedard is. He's the biggest prospect since Crosby. And the NHL, which is such a garage league all the time anyway, they got a 30-minute show at 8 o'clock on ESPN to hype the draft lottery. Now, the draft lottery is already done. They've already had the ping pong balls come up. They taped it. It's embedded. You can watch it on NHL.com. It's like a 16-minute video. The media is in there. This is not fixed. If you think this is fixed, stop. It's not. Go away. Okay, if the NHL fixed the draft lottery, Connor McDavid would not play for the Edmonton Oilers. All right, there's just no way if you're fixing it, you're going to let the biggest star in generation, and Connor McDavid actually is that. It's not hype. You're not going to let him rot his career away in Edmonton like he is right now. Okay, so stop with the fixing stuff. Uh, but the NHL blew the show because you, what you're doing is you're having a 30-minute TV show, right? And you're trying to build drama, and, and, and you're trying to show – that of these 16 teams in the lottery, one of them is going to draft number one. And they're going to get Conor Bedard. And they interview Conor Bedard. And it's all about him. And it's like, who's going to win? So what's the first thing they do? They eliminate the hope of 15 of the teams from winning Conor Bedard. I just don't get it. There's three spots that can be won in the lottery, as far as I know. Three, two, and one. Now, they change this every year. They've changed these rules. They're trying to avoid tanking. It doesn't work. People tank anyway. Stop with all that. Let's settle on a system that everyone can know and understand. All right? First of all, that's that. But let's say 3, 2, and 1 are the picks up for, for grabs here. All right? What you need to do is just show 3, 2, and 1 and then work back from there. So the first thing you should show is pick 3. And you should say with the third pick, it goes to the Columbus Blue Jackets. And the Columbus Blue Jackets fans are disappointed. Teams like fans of like the Sabres who could have moved up to that spot. We're disappointed. Our night's over. Okay, but everyone else, well, we still might have the second pick or we still might have the first pick. So then they go and they say, with the second pick, the NHL awards it to the Anaheim Ducks. And the Anaheim Ducks fans are crushed. Not again. This happened to us with Crosby. Hockey gods, do you exist? Again. The second pick, and then you take a break and you come back. All right, we're going to go for the number one pick. These were the teams that were eligible. You can move 10 spots. So anyone in one through 11 is eligible. We know that Anaheim and Columbus are picking two and three, so they're not eligible. But one of these nine teams is going to win, and now you have nine fan bases. You have real drama. Whose logo is going to be in that envelope? Steve Eiserman of the Red Wings is watching. He's got his fingers crossed. He's got his four-leaf clover on his desk. GMs all over the country, fans, watch parties. Is it us in the envelope? And the guy opens it and says, the Chicago Blackhawks, and Chicago goes nuts, and it's this great, dramatic moment. Instead, what do they do? They count back from... 15 or whatever 15 is this team 14 is this team 13 is this team then they try to stop at number three to build some drama and Kevin Weeks just keeps talking and says oh Columbus is number three they totally blow it right they're going to commercial and Kevin Weeks is saying it's three so we come back and we know that it's either going to be Anaheim or Chicago so now the only people excited the only people anticipating the only people waiting are Anaheim or Chicago and Chicago wins and good for them but the NHL you stink I'm going to tell you another group of people who stinks. All these people are trying to say that the scandal that the Blackhawks had with rape should have somehow precluded them from this. You know, that punishment has been given out. If the punishment was too weak, okay, maybe. But we just going to punish the Blackhawks in perpetuity for that? In 2026, should we take them out of something else Well, you had that rape scandal? That's a horrible thing. It was a horrible scandal. Joe Quinval still doesn't coach in the NHL because of it. Heads rolled. I think they are fined $2 million. You could argue the NHL didn't punish them harshly enough. But because of that, they the, they shouldn't be involved in the draft. What? How do those two things go together? I don't get that either. Um, it, it is perfectly fine for you to wish that the Blackhawks didn't win it because you no longer like that organization because you think that they're egregious through their handling of this, the cover-up, and that's perfectly fair. That's fine. But, I mean, unless you're going to get rid of the team, the team has to move on and be a participant in the league, be part of the league. So I don't understand that. But the Blackhawks, they win Bedard, uh, and I'm sure they're thrilled. Uh, the Ducks, not thrilled, um, another time being number two. Uh, the Sabres will draft 13th, which is good for the Sabres. Um, As much as I'd love to have Connor Bedard or Anna Ventilli or the kid from Russia, it's time for the organization to take the next step, and there's going to be great players available. It's a very deep draft, Um, and there's going to be very good players, very good USA Development League players that will be available at 13 for the Sabres. Um, So we'll see what they do as draft season comes closer. But congratulations to Blackhawks fans, and shame on you, NHL. You stink. You do everything wrong. Uh, One thing they don't do wrong, I guess, is they have a wonderful playoff, and the playoff itself is moving along the Tampa- Vegas Knights uh, one tonight. Uh, and they take a 2-1 to lead in that series. Uh, Seattle Kraken, led by superfan Mike McCready, they're up 2-1 to in their series against Dallas. Uh, New Jersey had a great performance from the Hughes brothers the other night. They're back in that series down 2-1 to with another home game. But the series I really want to talk about right now is the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers. Uh, the Maple Leafs, of course... One in round one, and they beat Tampa Bay, and they ended their streak since 2004. They hadn't won a playoff series in 17, 18 years, and heads were gonna roll if they didn't finally win a playoff series, and they did. They won it in overtime. Jonathan Tavares, Mister Sheets, Mister Bed Sheets, Toronto Bed Sheets, boy, he wins for the for the city. They're going crazy, and they know that they're gonna play the winner of Boston or Florida who are going to play game seven the next night. And Boston, the big bad Bruins, they won 65 regular season games. They set every record. But we're the Maple Leafs, right? And we just beat Tampa. And we're the greatest team since 2004 in this organization. And we're going to plow you, Bruins. We want Boston. We No, that's not what they cheered. They chanted, we want Florida. The lamest thing I've heard in a long time. We want Florida. Oof. Oof. And now you're down 3 nothing to Florida. Sam Reinhardt, former Sabre, second over pick, overall pick in the draft, scores the overtime goal, and 50-mission cap is warming up. Hopefully by next time we do a pod, they're eliminated. Uh, that's the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs where we stand. If I had to pick a cup winner right now, I would pick Dallas, I think. Go out on a limb since they're down right now. Carolina, New Jersey, whoever wins that looks really good. And hey, Florida, maybe they'll gain some momentum, or maybe I'll just pick every team. Uh, no, I'll stick with Dallas. Uh, it's England. Uh, it's Eng- Europe Championship Football. Congratulations, England. You have a new king. Uh, but it's European football this week, which I'm very excited for. Uh, there's some really great, uh, really great stuff going on this week. Tuesday. Today, as uh, I'm recording at night, but tomorrow when I wake up, it'll still be Tuesday, and it will be Real Madrid versus Manchester City in leg one of the first of two semifinals for the Champions League. And that should be a great game. It's the big matchup. It's the two the two favorites, I guess, of the four teams left. Uh, everyone kind of thinks whoever wins this is going to go on and, and win the Champions League. And that may or may not be true. We'll see about that. Uh, but they'll play the first leg uh, tomorrow uh, or today, depending on when you're listening to this, at 3 o'clock Eastern time in Spain. Uh, and I think it'll be important for Spain to build a lead here before they go back to to Manchester City and play and see what happens there. Wednesday is the Milan Derby. AC Milan versus Inter Milan. The uh, all the games will be at the San Siro. This is the AC Milan home game uh, this week. Rafael Leao, who's the best player maybe in Serie a, was the MVP last year. Got injured. Played only 13 minutes of the game over the weekend. And he will not be available. It doesn't seem like in this first game. So a big opportunity for Inter Milan maybe to take advantage of and get a lead that maybe they can protect in their home game. Uh, in the second leg on Thursday, Europa League, uh, both games in Italy, uh, Roma will host Bayer Liverskin at Stadium Olimpico, and Juventus will play Savella, um in Torino. And I know my credibility here with soccer is going to stink as long as I mispronounce all the team names. Well, look it. I don't know. I don't know who these teams are that much. I'm still learning. That's fine. Mock me if you want, but I have. I have passion for the Italian sides, and that's what I'll be watching. I'll be rooting for Roma and Juventus to win these games, and hopefully have an all Italian final uh, in Europa League, which will be big for these teams because Roma right now is in seventh of Serie, A. and the only way to the Champions League for them might be through this. And Juventus still may lose points and find themselves outside looking in in Syria if they if that happens to them. So they're going to want to, uh, both of those teams should be very, not only to win a trophy, but it may be important to them to be in European football next year. Also the Conference League, Fiorentina has a semifinal. That's also the first legs also in Italy. Um, and they'll play that as well on Thursday. So lots of good, Uh, European soccer one last thing about soccer congratulations to Napoli on ending a 33 year drought and winning the Scudetto they are the champions of Italy for the first time uh, since Maradona was on the team Um, and they glitched it in the middle of the week on the road and then and celebrated and then they went home and won again and celebrated again and unbelievable scenes uh, from there but a really interesting weekend for the top four and Syria, Napoli obviously are through. They're going to be in Europe next year in Champions League. Uh, Juventus has 66 points, Lazio 64, and Inter has 63. So those would be the four Champions League teams as of right now uh, with, what, four games left. Uh, but AC Milan is 61, Atalanta 58, and Roma 58. So it's the race is seven deep, only four can get in, and there's a chance that AC Milan or Inter Milan could play and lose the Champions League final this year and then not play Champions League football next year, which would be very disappointing for both of them. But congratulations to Napoli. And if you get a chance to watch some of the videos of the scenes, there, uh pretty incredible stuff. Also, uh, since we talked last, the NFL draft happened and uh, the Saints um, selected 29th and picked Brian Breesy. Defensive tackle from Clemson. He was once the number one rated prospect, five-star prospect in in the nation. And Pitt Clemson had a great first year, had some injuries since then, had his baby sister die of brain cancer, some really difficult life stuff. Um, But he is a beast, and if he can put it all together, if the injuries can go away, if he can um, use the inspiration he gained from his sister's beautiful fight, Um, He could be a great, great player for the Saints. Love the pick. Uh, They were linked to him for a long time, so I kind of researched him a little bit. And I feel really good about him being a part of the team. He seems like a great kid. He's he's very mature. He's obviously been through a lot with his family. Um, He comes from a close family, which is important to me. And I love the pick. Second round, they got an edge rusher from Notre Dame. I've heard mixed feelings on him. Uh, Third round, really interesting. Kendre Miller running back from TCU. Uh, he could be a really important part of the team, uh, considering Kamara could be suspended and how long will that be. Uh, and then a, a, kind of a sleeper pick, sixth round, 185. Uh, A.T. Perry, wide receiver from Wake Forest. The New Orleans football guys love him. And if I can track those dudes down, which I'm trying to, uh, and, and can speak to them, we will uh, talk about why they love him so much. But they say he could be a sleeper. They also picked a quarterback from Fresno State. Um, in round four, I would pick a quarterback in, like, round four, five, or six, like, every year. And once in a while, maybe you get Dak Prescott. And it changes your team. Uh, I would do that, like, almost every year. I would pick a project like that. So we'll see what happens uh, with Jake from Fresno State. Uh, league-wide, uh, it was a pretty fun first round. Um, Carolina picked Bryce Young first overall, then Houston picked C.J. Stroud and then traded back in to get Willie Anderson Jr. Used a lot of their draft capital to do it. I'm a little surprised they did this, considering next year Caleb Williams and Marvin Harrison Jr. are at the top of the draft. But if it works, what a what a franchise-changing draft, right? You pick second and third, and you picked your number one guy in offense and your number one guy in defense and Stroud and Anderson. So hard to argue with that if it works out. Uh, Anthony Richardson went number four to the Colts. Of course, Will uh, Will Levis, he dropped like a stone and didn't even get picked in the first round. I felt bad for him. But I always love the NFL draft. They're going to release the schedule on Thursday. I'm looking forward to that. There's a little misconception about it's the new contracts this year, so the schedule is more complicated. There's going to be less AFC to CBS and Fox to NFC tie-in this year, but really there's still going to be that tie-in. So every team has to play on Fox. Every NFC team has to play on Fox a certain amount of times. And every AFC team needs to play on CBS a certain amount of times. Now, every game is up for grabs as they made the schedule. But Fox is still going to get their six Cowboys games or whatever the minimum is. And the Chiefs games are still going to mostly be on CBS. So we'll see when the schedule comes out Thursday. We'll talk about it next time on here. Uh, One last thing. The baseball The Braves and the Orioles played an unbelievable series this weekend. Uh, The Braves lost the first game and then won the next two. Uh, And the the, the last one was fantastic. It was an 11.30 a.m. game on Sunday. It was on Peacock. Peacock exclusive, 11.30 a.m. I thought the Peacock coverage was fantastic. The picture looked great. The announcers were good. Andrew Jones was in the booth. He was great. The Braves won an extra innings. The Orioles are a fantastic team. Shout out to my boy, Peter. They're 22 and 13. They're a six and a half games out of first place already because Tampa Bay is 27 and 9. Listen to the AL East, okay? Tampa Bay, 29 and 7. Baltimore, 22 and 13. Toronto, 21 and 14, who, by the way, have won what? What? I don't know oh, where's their last ten. Oh, they're only five and five, but they won three in a row in the last ten. Boston eight and two in the last ten are twenty one and fifteen, and the Yankees are nineteen and seventeen. Judge is back though, so we'll see if they make a run. What a beast of a division! The AL Central Minnesota is nineteen and sixteen. The Yankees would be a half a game out in that division. They're ten games out in the AL East. Uh, 21 and 13 is good enough for first place in the West for Texas. So, interesting there. And in the in the National League, the Braves are 21 and 11, have opened up a seven game lead on the Mets. The Mets are 17 and 18, 3 and 7 in their last 10, uh, which is shocking. All the money they spent, I can't believe it. Phillies are 16 and 19, although they just got Bryce Harper back. Be interested to see there. The Pittsburgh is the feel-good story of the year so far, 21-15 in first place in the Central. And, of course, the Dodgers, where they always are, first place in the NL West. So, interesting start to the baseball season. But I want to mention that Braves and Orioles series. Unbelievable ball games on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, really great stuff if you got to see them. And if you haven't seen the Orioles, uh, watch the Orioles. They're a really cool, young, awesome team. Uh, so, really happy for Orioles fans who struggled, uh, suffered for a bit since What was it, like 2014, 15, around there when they made a couple of runs? Um, No World Series appearances, but deep playoff runs, at least, to the ALCS. Uh, Well, they seem to be a team that is going to be a tough out this year and has a really bright future behind their amazing catcher. So, All right, I think that's it. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk with Jack Curry. He's making his debut. Uh, he's with yes he just wrote a book called the 1998 yankees we'll talk to him about that Uh, then i'll be back for a quick book club update not much has changed but i'll read the books we're talking about right now and then on the other side of that we'll interview kirk mcknight his debut and then we'll do plugs and last one last thing and finish up all right we'll take a break we'll be right back with jack curry Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters Podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood, Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Hey, Jack, how you doing today?
2: Hey, Steven, I'm doing well. How about you?
1: Doing really good. The 1998 Yankees, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever, comes out, what, May 2nd, this is the release date. You know, it's an interesting thing I, I wanted to ask you about because uh, there's a guy named Al Strachan. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a he was a hockey writer, um, a pretty famous one, I guess. He worked in Toronto. Essentially, he was the guy Wayne Gretzky trusted. You know, he was the he was like the Ahmad Rash, as Ahmad Rashad was to Jordan. Uh, this guy was to Gretzky, and I'm starting to think that Jack Curry is the Ahmad Rashad or Al Strachan of the. Jeter era, Yankees. I mean, you've done a you've done a book with O'Neill. You've done a book with Cone. You did did this book. You got everyone. Are you kind of the guy that these guys trust maybe more than anyone?
2: Well, that's a nice compliment from you. I also did a book with Jeter,
1: right? When and he was Jeter, still that's right. Yep. And so Jeter. Yeah. That,
2: that's a nice compliment. If if that's the case, I hope that means that I, I've done my job well and. I now work with Paul O'Neill and David Cohn and those were book projects that I really enjoyed and after having written a pitching book with Coney and a hitting book with Paul O'Neill, spoke with my editor Sean Desmond and we just thought a natural book would be a book about a team. And anniversaries are great. People love anniversaries, so why not a book about the twenty fifth anniversary of the uh, what I think is the greatest team of all time.
1: The run kind of started, I guess, in a way in 95, right? With uh, finally breaking through to the playoffs. Well, they probably would have broke through if not for the strike, right? Then the strike True. happens. Yeah, they
2: probably would have. They had a 70-43 and 43 record in 94 before the work stoppage, right? Right.
1: It's probably them and the Expos. The Expos, who, the Expos right? right. Hurt the most by that at the, in the moment. Um, and then 95, they, they play the five-game series against the – Mariners then in ninety six they win the World Series. But you know, I would say at that point in ninety six, they were still the underdogs of the Brazier defending champs and the, Andrew Jones has that big night and in you know in game one. They win the first two games and the Yankees go for. It. How did they get from there to the best team ever so quickly? You know what It's I mean?
2: interesting, Steven. I started out the book writing about the ninety seven season because you're right, ninety six was a special year and a little bit of a surprise year. And after they do lose those first two to the Braves in the 96 World Series, I think the baseball world was expecting, okay, the Yankees had a nice little run. Braves are going to win this World Series. They come back and win. I think in 97 they were a better team. I think they thought they were a better team. That was so that they right? lose.
1: The yes. Al-
2: yeah. <laughs> when they lose to Cleveland, I that team is aggravated. They're morose. I remember being in the clubhouse and how miserable they were. That's why I started the book in 97 because I'm not ignoring 96, but I think 98 happened more because of 97. I think they had such a terrible feeling about leaving that season on the table or or leaving something on the table. In fact, when Joe Torre spoke to them at the beginning of spring training in 98, he said, we have unfinished business. And several players told me how much that resonated with them. And then they went out there like a team on a mission in 98 to make sure they did finish off that business.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too because that happens a lot in sports. Like I know there's a story about the um the Oilers right before they won their cups with <laughs> the Oilers come up 80s Oilers come up again. Right before they win their cups again uh with Gretzky and Messier and them, they lost to the Islanders in the last cup that they won. And overtime or whatever it was, they lost the last game to the Islanders and I guess they were sitting in the locker room and they were expecting a party and they could just kind of hear a pin drop over there. Because, you know, the Islanders had just exhausted themselves to win that cup. And it kind of was like a realization that this is what it takes. I think there's a lot of teams in sports history we could look at. They came to my mind first. That you got to lose the win sometimes. That sometimes having that defeat like that can set off, I think, what you're talking about. Maybe it's just something the way athletes are wired up. Like the, the 88 Bills lost to the Bengals. Then they went to the four Super Bowls. You know, uh, Bengals and Browns actually in back to back years, that in the four Super Bowls. You know, and I think that happens a lot in sports. That's something you, you think is is in play here.
2: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I know from. I mean, I've been covering baseball for more than thirty years, and I know from talking to players, they will tell you that the the losses bring on more hurt and misery than the wins bring on joy, and, and you are searching for that joy, but you are also trying to avoid that misery, and you brought up mariano earlier with the home run that he allowed to alomar jr in right. game four of 97 and this is where joe tory was such a brilliant manager when the yankees plane landed coming home from cleveland in the new york area first thing tory did when they got on the tarmac was he went over to mariano rivera who was hurting thinking that he cost the yankees the series and he said you're not the reason we lost the series you're the reason we even had a chance to be in this position and so Tori was already managing for 1998, right then and there, letting Mariano take that message into the off season, so that he didn't beat himself up all off season. Mariano ends up being the greatest closer of all time. Maybe he would have. Maybe what Joe said he helped him two percent, but I still think it was a bright move by by Torrey to do that.
1: And what did they go 93 and one or something like that with the lead?
2: Oh, it was crazy! Uh, right, yeah. they didn't lose. They got a lead. They didn't lose. Right.
1: And, and that was always the way it was. You know, we were talking about lose to win. The Braves, too, lost, you know, 91, 92, 93, before winning in 95. Um, and, and, and and then they, they lose to the Yankees in 99. And watching these teams, that's how it always was. If you didn't get them, you know, if you got to the sixth inning or even the seventh inning and you were down, it was just over. And those pitchers would come in, and it was like there wasn't even much drama, really. It was like ground out, broken bat, ground out. You know, it's like... Clinical became clinical almost to watch the Yankees.
2: David Cohn always has a great point about Mariano. The, the few times that Mariano would have a hiccup, it would it would happen fast. Mariano would either shut you out fast, shut you down, or if you did do something against him, like you just said, blue pit, uh, a roller in the infield. Uh, yeah, like uh,
1: Arizona is a good example of that, right? right? Something yeah. like
2: that. Nobody was you. You rarely saw Mariano give up five or three straight hard-hit baseballs. But th- there there are so many experiences, though, Stephen, when you think about the postseason where teams didn't have that that shutdown reliever at the end. And that's why Mariano... is in
1: 96, right? Yeah,
2: Mar- Mar- Mariano sets that team apart because the Yankees... Yeah, he had the Alomar game and he had 2001 in Arizona. Other than that... And, and and a Red Sox, there's some Red Sox hiccups in there against the Billy, Big Poppy and Billy stuff. Miller game in yes. the regular
1: season, I, and I that's mean, the thing look, about him. We can remember every time he failed. Is there yeah, another look at po- the guy's
2: yeah. postseason record? It's not. It's amazing.
1: There, 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 probably isn't another relief pitcher that you can remember. We, me, and you can recount the times he blew a save, all of them, because right. it's they're so significant, right, when they happen. You know, most guys they blow them all the time. It's part of the job. Like you know, it happens didn't happen. To really I remember happen. when
2: Justice came over to the Yankees, I asked him about uh Mariano's presence and Justice said, "If we had him when I was in Atlanta, we oh, would have three or four world series." He man. said he would have been the difference maker.
1: Yeah, and I think he was always the difference, you know. He was he was the he was he was he set him apart from everyone. Such a weapon. Yeah. Uh Justice, by the way, maybe my all-time favorite Homer. In the, in the whole Yankees run, was this home run against the Seattle, the three run home run in the LCS? Yeah, he was. A,
2: he came to play. That, that was a great. That was a great trade by Cashman. Justice fit in well. I always loved watching Justice uh, swing. I thought he had such a. He didn't. Have, maybe Tipper Jones' swing was was more beautiful, than Ken Griffey Junior.'s, but there was just something about Justice at the plate. He just was a confident hitter.
1: Yeah, it's nice, too. What were your two best home runs? Oh, the one I hit to win the World Series and the one I hit to win the ALCS. That's not bad. Not bad. <laughs> right? uh, the, the other thing about the 98 team, when we talked about it being so clinical in terms of their pitching and the way they would end a game. Another thing is not a team with like this guy hit 60 home runs and this guy hit 50. They would just pound you to death. It was like a persistence, an inevitability, you know, hit after hit, after hit, after hit, after hit. It was like a, a wave that came, or something. They were just so persistent, like that. They didn't, yeah, they, yeah,
2: they so, were relentless. Stephen Thir- uh, led word, the yeah. majors, led the majors, and run scored. All nine starters had on base percentages over three fifty. I spoke to Jason Veritek for this book, and he was a rookie with the Red Sox in ninety eight. I just asked him to give me his scouting report on the hitters from that season, and you could just tell his brain was. He was back in ninety eight saying. You couldn't get them out. They they would not. They would not stretch the zone. They would not chase pitches. So he said you had to make perfect pitches, and it wasn't just one through five. He said it was one through nine. It was it was endless. It was relentless.
1: You know, you talked about talking to Veritech, and I'm always interested in this when I talk to someone who wrote a book. But it seems like you got to talk to just about everyone, at least living, for the book. Um, and I was thinking about this because you didn't get to talk to, to Steinbender specifically for this. Um, because obviously he's passed away but what do you think George would have said if you did get the chance to sit down and talk to him about the 98 team what, what do you think uh, the boss yeah well
2: I, I mean I, I do include quotes from George from 98 right and I, yep. and I spoke to I spoke to George in the clubhouse in 1998 right after they won and he had no qualms about calling them the best team of all time and he said based on the record I think you would have to call them the best team of all time and he was crying. I think it was. I think I wrote in the book it was ninety percent emotional, and ten percent the champagne stinging his eyes. I think, knowing George the way that I know knew George, Stephen, twenty-five years later, I think George would have been even prouder. Nice. I think he would have been saying it even louder. I think he would have said, "No one ever won one hundred and twenty-five games." This team led the majors in runs scored, led the American League in fewest runs allowed. As you as you mentioned, they were unbeatable when they had a lead late in the game. I think George's pride in this team would have just grown over the years. Dominated the playoffs, you know. Yes, so 11 and 2. Yep.
1: You look at back at a team like this and think like could there have been something to derail them? Was there was there uh, you know some was, was there anything, you know, and I think part of what you do in a book like this is look back at that like you know, and, and maybe the one thing might have been the, David Wells, you know, he's a little bit volatile maybe. He pitches up the, the perfect game. Um there's story he says he, he would have in DUI you know if he drove to the same way, who knows sometimes <laughs> these state these stories can be I'm a big Hulk Hogan fan you know sometimes his stories can be um <laughs> part of the gimmick or whatever but you write in the book about um about his relationship with Tori and I think it's David Cohn there's a quote I wrote down where he says it just became easier to just leave him alone you know just to let him be who he was and and do his thing and it seems like that's kind of the way he managed him it seemed like that worked and it's maybe just another another example of just Tory being the perfect guy for the perfect club and pushing all the right buttons
2: yeah and I don't think the Tor- the Tory Wells uh division was real it, it was definitely a, there was definitely a personality clash there they 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 banged heads but Stephen that was never going to be a, a problem on the entire team here's 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 one interesting point about that I interviewed Homer Bush who was on the team the whole season he, he was a bench guy for the whole season. He didn't even know that Tory and Wells clashed that much. So that that was definitely between the two of them, but Bush didn't even know that that existed. Uh, Cone was the savior. Cone was smart enough to see that the two of them didn't get along, basically told Torrey, I'll take care of him. And from the moment Wells and Cone start doing their own thing, which meant they would stay away from the team on the road, they were two of the best pitchers in the American League. They finished third and fourth in the Cy Young Award that year so. That wasn't going to derail that team. I think the one thing that could have derailed them is is the obvious thing. Game four, ALCS against Cleveland. El Duque came through, shut down Cleveland. They win that game. That was the pressure point for them that season. That was the most stressful experience they had, and El Duque came through. And from that point, counting that game, they win the last seven games of the postseason and sail to a championship.
1: Yeah, and the World Series was... My goodness. I mean, 80, 98 and 99, both of those World Series are such demolitions. Um, and what they've, they love in the last four. I'm just thinking of this. I'm sure it's been said a billion times, but they won the last four in 96 of the 12 World Series games in a row.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: Uh, Jeter, I, I was think I was, I remember when this documentary came out, and I know you were in it, interviewed for it. Um, when it came out, I was it's thinking, finally going to learn something about Jeter. And I don't know, these, uh, Jordan had the editorial control or whatever in, in the last dance and Jeter's company put this one together. I think I finished it thinking, I don't know if I got anything, I, anything all that special out of those eight episodes. It was fun to relive the memories with Jeter and go through it with him. But, you know, he, he I think he maintained, he maintained, he maintained being Derek Jeter. He, he like, here, come on in. I'll show you. And then he found a way to not really show us. Nobody was, you know, but it was still great, I guess. I don't know. Um, a Magic act from Jeter. And you talk a little bit about the joy of Jeter as one of the chapters. And, um, you know, he's really coming into his own, you know, getting close to be the captain and all that. But what about Jeter? I mean, difficult. I don't even know the right question to ask because, again, clinical comes to mind. You know, he's so incredibly clinical. Show up, hit, you know, field, do Jeter things. Don't somehow... Have every beautiful girl in Manhattan, but you know nobody gets upset. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like Jeter is a is a, a magician as much as a shortstop. The way he he managed to uh, to do things, and I, I think it's emblematic of the '98 Yankees, the perfect shortstop for maybe the perfect team.
2: Yeah, I actually think I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit. Sure. Uh, I, I covered Jeter's entire career and wrote a book with him, and I I can honestly tell you that when I interviewed him for this book. There was there was definitely more of a boastful recollection from Jeter. What he told me now about the '98 team, he would have never said in '98 or '99. Okay. He still sure. playing. Fair. He didn't want to tick anybody off. Yep. But Jeter not only called them the greatest team ever. He said they wanted to pummel teams and they wanted to beat them inning. They wanted to beat them every inning. Jeter wouldn't have said that as a player because he wouldn't have wanted to tick off the opposition. So I. I I thought that Jeter was somewhat reflective and interesting for me in this book because he took you inside. He took you inside where, Stephen, they weren't just trying to win a game. They were trying to beat you every inning. And I know baseball teams say that. And, of course, while you're on the field, you're, you're trying to do it. But I, I truly believe that's what the 98 team's mission was. And maybe more than any other team in history, they, they did a great job of doing that.
1: Yeah, I think maybe Jeter's at a point, too, now where he's kind of – finally taking the time to enjoy or appreciate everything he accomplished.
2: Yeah, I agree with that, too. Yeah. I agree with that, too. And he uh, he told me a couple of interesting stories. And this was a total New York story. The Yankees did have had a hiccup in September where they were struggling for a couple of weeks, even though they were handily going to win the division. And Jeter still remembers 25 years later, some guy in New York seeing him walking to his car guy didn't say hello. The guy didn't say, hey, Derek. All the guy said was, you guys better not blow it. <laughs> and Jeter still remembers that. And that sort of tells you what was going on at the time. You you better not win 114 and then lose in the postseason because then no one's going to remember you.
1: If the publisher were to come to you and say, <laughs> the 25th anniversary of 98 was great, let's do the 25th anniversary of 99, let's just run it back, what do you think the thesis would be? of that book would be why was that seem so different
2: boy you know what steven i've done i've done a lot of these interviews and uh that, that's one of the most interesting questions i've had because oh, i i haven't allowed my brain to go there fair the 98 team was, yeah. was so outstanding and, and i did so much research i i'd have to i'd have to really go back and reflect and, I, and i'd have to think about it i don't know that it would be as well received as i hope this book is being i i well, yeah, That's it's a much different
1: story, right? I mean, what were they, ninety-eight and sixty-four, or something like that, that year? Yeah, it's a totally, yeah. it's a
2: totally different story. You do have some of the same cast of characters, so the freshness of El Duque, the uh, the surprise and the excitement of someone like Brocious, that that wouldn't be as juicy in in nineteen ninety nine, and even a uh, Shane Spencer's story, you're not getting that in nineteen ninety nine. So I, I would. I would never turn down the opportunity to write another book about the Yankees. But I do think that the 98 team, with all that was going on, stood stood above that 99 team. And I, I, I wonder what a 99 book would look like. As you mentioned already, they, they swept the Braves in, in four games again. So there would probably, probably be a lot about that, about the that just World Series dominance.
1: Well, and they only lost one playoff game again that year. I mean, yeah. they, they sort of struggled – that's why it was interesting to me and I thought of it the other day cuz that team sort of you look at the 98 team and they're so relentless and so clinical and so 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 much on a mission you know and then it seemed like they kind of slept work sup walked a little bit through the season um which you know we're talking about a team that won 98 games I mean who wouldn't want to sleep walk to 98 games so maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic but then they dominated again with the playoffs game with another ring you know but I just wonder you know what changed maybe dynamics but uh, maybe, well, you've got my
2: mind—you've yeah. got my mind moving like an author because as we're talking now, I, I know exactly where that book would start. For for me, because I was there, for me that book would start with the the announcement of the trade of them getting Clemens for Wells, right? Because we—I was in the Yankee clubhouse in Tampa that day, and it was that was a—you don't get a lot of shell shock trades, and that was that one just blew the doors off the place. Wells was absolutely. Ticked off, everybody was surprised. Cone was trying to console Wells. It's it, it just that—that that was the mark of the Yankee front office saying, "Okay, we might have been the best last year, but we we're trying to get better." And they went out and added Clemens. <laughs> how,
1: how do you how do you get how do you make a hundred and twenty-plus win team better? Get a seven-time Cy Young winner, I'm
2: exactly, yeah. exactly, right? And of course, as you know, he wasn't great that year. He had a four and a half ERA. He I mean, he ended up winning 14 games, but it was a it was a struggle for uh, Roger in his first year in New York.
1: Yeah, it often is those first the first year in New York can get you. The sports guys are here with Jack Curry, an awesome new book about the 1998 Yankees called "The 1998 Yankees: The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever." It will be released on May 2nd of 2023. Um, obviously, wherever you can find hardcover books, or you can do eBooks. Is an audio book is downloadable as well. So they got it all covered. You could follow Jack on Twitter for more info about that. Um, you know, sometimes when you write about a team like this, the question can be well, like, "What? What is the legacy of this team going to be?" But it's kind of obvious what the legacy of this team is going to be. It's really not that interesting. The legacy is going to be they're the best or one of the best of all time. You know, they're one of the one of the five teams that Cheater won a ring with. Um, you know, they're the 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 pinnacle of, of the of the era you know, the, the, as great as they're going to get. Um, so that's not a good question. So to kind of wrap up the book and the research you did with it, um, if that's not, if, if that's not the overall story, if we kind of throw that out and say, you can't use that, then what is the legacy of the Yankees? What is the story then if we kind of put the obvious aside for a second?
2: I, I think it might go back to what I said earlier about rebounding because, uh, I have this number in the in the book i believe it was 20 plus players played on the 97 and the 98 team so yes if the legacy is they were the greatest team of all time how did they get there they got there because as you and i already discussed there was some pain there was some pain before you were able to climb that mountain or, or as you tried to climb that mountain and i just also think there's something about teamwork and camaraderie and I do think that chemistry and baseball and camaraderie sometimes we 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 overstate that and these guys all want to go out there and win they all, they all want to have great teams but I do think there was something special about that team.
1: Yeah, so the, kind of the last thing on the 98 Yankees then cuz you mentioned Spencer earlier. And he kind of had that that moment in New York that happens like I'm thinking of like maybe the Linsanity thing that went on or this like phenomenon in September where he hits the 9 home runs however many it was, do you think that really got them? Without that, do you think they would have won as many games as they did? I mean, obviously, they still have won many, 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 many games, but did that kind of help the team in what could have been like a a slog of September where you just kind of, oh, is the playoffs here yet? How many games? How many more trips? You know, let's get going. Let's get the World Series run started. Let's do this. But did that kind of help them in September in terms of the getting to the big numbers, having that sort of magnetic moment of the nine home runs and Spencer coming up from the minor leagues and all that?
2: Well, they did. They did struggle for periods in September, so I, I don't want to statistically. It, it was not their best month, but I will say this: I I do think that what Spencer did was was an absolute jolt, and it it was just a reminder to these guys that wow, here's a team that you would have thought was totally set up there there were there were no at bats to be had and then you look at what spencer did and you say well maybe th- maybe there are some at bats to be had left field's been a revolving door all year anyway maybe maybe this kid has now just forced his way into some at bats so i think they were absolutely jolted by what he did because man what 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 a september he had
1: incredible an incredible moment in new york the 1998 <clears throat> yankees the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever by jack curry that's the book uh jack curry you can see him on yes find him on twitter uh get the book jack do you have any questions for me
2: steven i appreciate your time thanks for taking the interest in the book
1: last thing i'll get you out of here on this any concerts this summer
2: repeat that question for me steven i'm sorry
1: any good concerts this summer what's your summer summer concert schedule looking like i I have
2: tickets to see springsteen which everybody wants to see springsteen yeah I also might try and catch uh, Ziggy Marley. I just uh, recently saw Ziggy Marley and his brothers play Red Rocks out in Colorado, which is it was a bucket list place for me to visit. Yeah, I would have And you. then Ziggy's coming to New York solo a couple times, so I'm probably going to try and catch him there. What
1: do you want to see Bruce play? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, have you looked? Have uh, you seen the set studies?
2: I have. In fact, I was listening yeah. to uh, – I was listening to uh, his channel on uh, Sirius XM right. as I was uh, driving home last night, and they were playing a lot of the songs that he has played on tour. I'm, I'm a big uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town fan. Okay. That, 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 anything from that album, anything from that album, or anything from The Rising, I, I would be happy.
1: All right, very, 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 very last thing, and you can do it in one word. We'll do over under 93 wins for the Sears Yankees team.
2: I'm going over. Okay. Yep, I'm going over.
1: All right, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. The 1998. Steven, thanks Yankees. for the time.
2: All right, appreciate thanks for having it. me on, man. See ya. I
1: was a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds tight pants points hollering out she was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own sudden way up high way up firm and high i want to thank i want to thank jack curry for being on the podcast today Loved having him. Great debut. The 1998 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever by Jack Curry. Uh, check the book out if you enjoyed the interview. Really loved having Jack on. A couple other books I want to go through real quick. Uh, in a second, we're going to take a break. We're going to have the debut of Kirk McKnight. He's the author of The Voices of Baseball, The Game's Greatest Broadcasters Reflect on America's Pastime. Uh, Kirk's going to join us. We're going to talk all about... Um, we're going to talk all about his book, which is really great. He also has another book called The Voices of Hockey, and we get into that a little bit, and I really enjoyed that, and I really enjoyed uh, having Kirk and I want to thank him, and we'll get to that interview in a second. Uh, two other books I want to mention quickly. First, LeBron by Jeff Benedict. I finished the book. I reached out to Jeff. Haven't heard from him. I'm going to try him again. Hopefully, he scheduled that interview for the next show, and if not, I'm just going to move on. But uh, it's a good book, and there's a lot I want to talk to Jeff about in it so hopefully we get that opportunity uh like we will later in june june 20th 2023 the book cage kings by michael thompson comes out how an unlikely group of moguls champions and hustlers transformed the usc into a 10 billion dollar industry and that's where the book club's at so we're finishing two today hopefully we'll finish lebron next time and then we'll be down to cage kings uh so it's time to add some more and there are some more coming out there's a new uh, John Feinstein book coming out I'd like to track him down uh, but there's always stuff coming out sometimes it's too hard to keep track of everything that's coming out uh, and there should be some stuff for the summer to come out so we'll do some reading uh, over the summer of course if there's anything ever you want featured in the book club you have a tip send me an email at sportscasters at gmail.com and I'd love to uh, feature it if possible so alright we're going to take a break uh, we'll be right back with Kirk McKnight <music> Our next guest is a graduate of BYU and is the author of a book called The Voices of Baseball and another great book called The Voices of Hockey. He's making his debut on the Sportscaster today. A warm welcome to this Cougar, Kirk McKnight. Hey, Kirk, how you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? Very good. The Voices of Baseball, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime, updated edition. Why was now the time to update it?
0: Why well, was now the time? Tu- well, the, the publisher asked if I was interested in it and I'd already been doing interviews for a few years. And I said, yeah, because this is what I've been hoping for. You know, baseball is ever changing and history is continually piling up on top of itself. So why not when they want to do a updated edition? I'm ready for it and put myself right back to work and did a bunch more interviews aside from the ones I already had in the can. And was able to add about 25 maybe 30 percent more new material to the book
1: the podcast is called the sportscasters right so um anytime i hear about a book called the voices of baseball you know either go back into your catalog the voices of hockey as well i'm interested you know my antenna is up because i'm one of those guys that when i was going to high school and college and i bought the usa today every friday you know the first thing i read was rudy marsky's column um uh, you know uh, because I've just always been into sports media and always been a sports media nerd. And, and that's kind of my background. What's kind of your background that attracted you to work on projects like the voices of baseball and the voices of hockey?
0: Well, I, you know, being a big sports fan, especially of those two sports hockey and baseball uh, it's always fun to have somebody kind of tell the tell as well. Uh, you know, the, the sports in my mind, especially hockey uh, very, very entertaining. And, you I tip my hat to the hockey broadcasters for being able to keep up with all the action. And for the bro- the baseball broadcasters, I tip my hat to them for being able to lead us through the game, which can be often pretty slow, except for coming into this year, it's sped up quite a bit. And now the broadcasters are having to change their craft a little bit, but the fact that they can make it an experience uh, as slow as this, the play of game can be at times, it's, it's a tribute to them as well to kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily just tell us a story, but you know, give us all kinds of background in the in the same in the same setting.
1: Yeah, the MLB app has the um, you can buy for like twenty bucks a year or whatever, and I always do the um, you can buy all the audio broadcasts for the whole year. And I've been doing this for I don't know seven, eight, nine years now, and living on the East Coast. And when my daughter was born, I found myself getting tired out at nine, ten o'clock, whatever. And for the last, like, five or six years of my life, I just kind of went to bed putting the Dodgers game every night and letting, like, Vin Scully be my bedtime story guy. You know, and it was just an unbelievable journey every night into his world and into his thoughts and listening to him tell his stories. And I just, as much as I love the pitch clock, and I do love it, um, especially from a television-watching experience and the game in general, I've wondered, and I don't know if you have as well, you know, if it's going to change the way we enjoy the game on the radio, which I've loved so much over the years.
0: Well, I, I've actually had the opportunity, being this close to spring training as I am here in Arizona, I went on a Padres broadcast to basically, they said they'd give me a half inning to plug the book. And the outs were at most each, I think the the, the out with the most pitches was two. <laughs> and wow. so, you know, and <laughs> and they... Uh, and I, I'm getting out, you know, a six-pitch inning, five-pitch inning. And, you know, how much time has transpired? Maybe two minutes. And they said, well, we'll let you on in the bottom half of the inning as well. And I made the joke to them. I said, it's too bad you guys didn't have me on in the Padres' half of the fifth inning because I could have probably read the book. It was a five-run inning. And <laughs> and the next inning, they're up one, two, three. So it, it, it it's definitely been affected. And they definitely – have had to, like I was mentioning earlier, be more on their toes and adapt to this. And, and whether they do or not is going to be a testament to their ability, you know, like, honestly, you're going from your heels to the tops of your, to your toes in, in a sense, because it's been such a slowed down pace. Now the games are speeding up to where they're a half hour shorter, pretty much. And a half hour, when you, when you look over on a scale of a three hour broadcast, that's, that's a good uh, – <clears throat> that's 16%. Yeah. That adds up. That yeah. adds up. 16% may not seem like a lot to people, but when you spread 16% over a, over a game, those little percents there each inning, 2% each inning, that makes a huge difference.
1: And I wonder, too, because we're kind of at a point where most of the guys who've been with teams for 40, 50, 60 years or whatever, that generation has sort of passed through and it's turned over. And, and and the voice of teams, the voice of franchises, our newer voices. You know, I had Joe Davis on the show a few weeks ago and, and talking about, you know, the enormous task of becoming the new voice of the Dodgers and the new voice of baseball on Fox, too. Like, what a doubleheader of trying to take over for Vince Scully and then, you know, Joe Buck nationally after Buck had done the job from, what, 1996 to 2021. He, it was braves world series bookends the braves losing to the yankees in 96 <laughs> uh, winning it in 2021 um but i wonder if we're gonna have the romantic sort of connection that we do with the new generation of broadcasters as we've seen the game change in in relation to the pitch clock and the the the, the swifter innings in and, and the faster pace i wonder if you know, I, like I think about Vin and the way it was just story time, and you just sit back and relax and listen, and you know, uh, you know, even um, Susan and and um, and uh, and Papa Yankee over here in New York. You know, like is it going to be the same? I, I don't know if you thought about it at all.
0: Well, I mean, uh, you you mentioned the at bat app, uh, the MLB yeah. at bat app, and and I have that, and and I honestly. Th- for you know the last several years I tuned in to radio broadcasts cuz I'm like hey I can go check out Dave Van Horn on Florida or or I can check out Marty Brenneman in Cincinnati now I'm mentioning these and people are probably tuning in like those guys don't broadcast anymore yes that is the point I'm making I'm tuning in now and I'm not hearing my familiar yeah. voices right. where did he go you know? yeah where is that guy and he, yeah and 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 Ted Leitner, another one, you know, I, I, when I went on the radio broadcast with the Padres, it was with Jesse Aguilar and Tony Gwynn Jr. So the sport evolves. And it's like you said, we're not seeing those multi-generational guys. We're seeing new blood. And we are starting to see the numbers fall off as far as I'm, I'm starting to see the numbers, uh, not, not just in those who have passed away, but those who are retiring. So like, you know they've they've retired, so their careers have died in the sense where they've retired. But also, you know, they, there's four people in the book that I've interviewed personally that have now passed on: Dick Enberg, Tim McCarver, Vince Scully, and Dave Wills of the Tampa Bay Rays. Wow! And you know, how and,
1: many in the hockey book? Do you, is is there a few? Oh,
0: you know, I couldn't even. i could not even, even sure. Tell you. Okay, yeah. It's, it's. I'm sure there's probably a handful in there. Right. Um, I'm sure Jigs McDonald, if he's not passed on, he's he's getting up there in years and yeah. and there's a few like that, but you know, D- Dave, Wills, for example, wasn't, wasn't that old. It was a tragic, you know, kind of all of a sudden he's, he's gone from us, but you know, Tim McCarver and Dick Enberg and Ben Scully, those, you know, I, I y- y- you kind of come to know that, you know, the, the end of their path is near broadcasting career and life. But, uh, going going back to, what you're asking, you know, like it, we are seeing, um, we are seeing these numbers fall off uh, as far as these 40 or 50 years. You know, we got Euchre still around. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you mentioned John Sterling, Pop Pinstripe. You know, he's uh, he's one of those Lou Gehrig style broadcasters. Joe Castiglione in, in in Boston as well. I mean, you look at those guys and the amount of games they broadcast over their careers uh you know their workhorses um and so we're seeing less and less of of that as far as the you know the four or five decade broadcasting experience which is sad but also you know the the flow of the game kind of kind of caters to uh more energetic style uh, I'm interested kind of hearing some of the more uh broadcasts filled with, former players you know you got David Cohn who does a great job as a broadcaster who's obviously a well-known former player but does an immensely great job in uh adding his expertise on the matter Tim McCarver himself even said that David Cohn is a great example of a broadcaster you know who came from being a player just as Tim McCarver had so they understand the science of the of the game and we're seeing more and more of that so it's helpful whether the entertainment value is there as much, you know, whether we're getting those calls, those call signs that they have, you know, or even just homerism, where we got people who are just absolute homers for their own team, right? We may right. not be seeing that as much. Uh, which, for some, they appreciate it; for some, they miss it. You know, it just depends on your market. Because a lot of people in other markets hate the homers of those other markets. You know, they they can't stand hearing somebody call like they couldn't stand when Hawk Harrelson would say. Good guys, three, whatever else, you know. Right, two, yeah. You know, they it's, didn't like it. But it's, it's, part part of of yeah, it's part of the charm.
1: Yeah, it's part of the charm of the game, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's, it's why the national guys struggle so much too, right? It's why someone as great as Joe Buck can be polarizing because you spend – baseball is an everyday thing, right? It's with you every day, and every day you're listening to John Sterling talk about how much he loves the Yankees, and then you get to the biggest games of the season – and all of a sudden you have someone calling it down the middle and it doesn't sound down the middle. You know, it sounds all the way the other way to your ears because you're so used to it being, the you know, being a homer broadcast. And I, I talked to Joe about that on this show and it's a tough thing to beat. And, you know, Joe Davis yeah. is going to have to fight it now, too. You can go on Twitter during a baseball, a national baseball game, and you can find within five minutes, 10 tweets of someone saying that the broadcaster hates the one team. And ten tweets of the broadcaster are saying they hate the other team, you know, <laughs> and and that's totally because all year in baseball you're with the people who are calling the Homer call, and it's it's and and I'm not I love it I mean it's great you know but um, it makes it tough on the national guys I think.
0: Yeah, it, Bob Costas made a great point. Bob Costas is a new cast member of this updated edition of the book, and I read said, every
1: word from him. Yeah, I'm a huge Costas guy.
0: And he and he mentioned that you know sometimes. You know, when you're on a national spotlight, you know everybody knows who Tom Brady is. For example, if we're talking about the NFL, but not necessarily every everybody knew before the Super Bowl a couple of years ago who Joe Burrow was. You know, but the Cincinnati right or Hurts
1: this it. year, sure, yeah, it Hurts
0: right yep. or Hurts or something like that, yeah. So you know, you you uh, you as a broadcaster, you're especially a national broadcaster. Which I mean, for the book, uh, if you think about it, you know, some still belong to teams like Brian Anderson. Uh, but Brian Anderson is a great example of somebody who is, you know, accepted the call to be on these national broadcasts because he does such a good job of it. I mean, the guy broadcasts college basketball, he, he broadcasts, uh, the NBA, he, you know, he, he's just everywhere. Yeah, like Kenny he's so Albert, good.
1: Kenny Albert's another yeah. example of that. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, Brian Anderson though, you know, he's when the first edition of the book came out, he was the newbie. In my in my class of thirty three broadcasters of the book, he was basically the newbie. He was the one who had just been, you know, only a few years there broadcasting with the Brewers. But now, I mean, if you're on TBS, you know, for for some of the big games, where they are throughout the year, and then for March Madness, I mean, he's the guy. And so uh, you you kind of you kind of realize that these guys have a have a discipline about them too, because yes, they're used to being on the team broadcasts. You know he's used to being on the TV broadcast for the Brewers, but now he's in this whole new role, uh, and a dip or a different role, I guess, and 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 calling these national games. And and who knows? You know, I don't think he's ever been really criticized for being a homer, but you do also have to have that, uh, you know, censuring eye of not uh, not going one way or the other or leaning one way or the other. I think haters are just going to hate. It's so sure. funny how That's many. True. People just are automatically going to tweet. I mean, especially, I mean, thinking of hockey fans, hockey fans can be brutal. <laughs> just yeah. just uh, the slightest slip up and you are done, you yeah. know, and it happens. And, and baseball too. I mean, uh, when I would talk to people, <laughs> and this is great because when I would talk to people and tell them I have a book on broadcast and they'd be like, and and, and I love Joe Buck and, and he's great and he texts me back and forth you know, when we have good con- not yeah, same. conversations, he's been
1: amazing to me.
0: Yeah. He's been a great, great help to me in getting other interviews. And it's so, and I have to hold my tongue because I'm sitting there talking to people about my book on broadcast. They're so like, I hate Joe Buck. Yeah. You know, well, I, I like, can't,
1: I, I go off on people. <laughs> and,
0: and I do. <laughs> I, and, and I'm just like, well, okay, that's your opinion. Yeah. But like, that is what happens when you're on that national spotlight, especially if you're on multiple sports, like Buck. And uh, Brian Anderson, like I just mentioned.
1: Yeah. You know, grow, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I still live here. I have my whole life. And we've been spoiled here. I mean, you go on the hockey side. We had the great late Ted Darling uh, when I was mm. growing up. You know, Rick mm-hmm. Jennerat, who we we said goodbye to last year. Uh oh. You know, Harry Neal, uh, on, you know, on the um, color side. Uh, we've had Pete Weber call games here. Uh, the great Pete Weber is with Nashville now. Really spoiled there. On the football side, although I'm not a Bills fan, Van Miller called games for so long, was so great. Um, You know, one of the legendary football guys. Been spoiled. And I have my own guys who I love. Like I said, I love Buck. I love Kenny Albert. Um, You know, but Jennerette really is my number one in terms of just Mm. kind of that romantic side of appreciating the announcers, you know. But who are your guys? I was curious about this. You write (laughs) about so many. But who are your guys? Who are your... Who are your top guys, the ones you hold close to you, and the guys who called those moments that resonate in your heart and uh make you love this.
0: Well, I mean, Vince Scully would be up there obviously just sure. for the purposes, but you know, having a 30 minute conversation with Vince Scully is 30 minutes of my life that I'll always cherish.
1: Yeah, um, unbelievable. and you know, yeah. obviously,
0: that's the that's the that's the mount everest of there but you know coming down that mountain a little bit not too far in my personal opinion but john miller was oh yeah uh, a great and he still is awesome to me he's still nice and he's still personable to me i ran into him the other day a spring training game in scottsdale uh giants you know i was up there in the press box doing a uh doing an interview with the cleveland guardians radio broadcaster for a pre-game show and uh i just happened to catch john as he was grabbing his score sheet and he you know it of course, just gives me the time of day like he always has in the several encounters we've had. He's helped me two or three different times for the book and walking and talking. He's just asking about the project and and he's just always been a congenial, cordial person with me.
1: That's awesome. So he should still so be calling yeah. Sunday night baseball. <laughs> They've never replaced him on Sunday. So, you know what I mean? He they have bounced from guy to guy. Uh, you know, never gonna you know, some guys that's just they, they take a job and they make it theirs and it's so hard to hear anyone else in that spot afterwards you know
0: I think Eric Nadell is another one that I'd like to just kind of give a shout out to just sure. because he's he's these are a couple of the broadcasters that have been with me all along the way and they've been very uh, gracious with me and, and giving me their time anytime I've asked and they're legends of the game and they've helped me understand not necessarily just my craft in writing and how I write out the chapter or things like that. You know, I, I, I value Eric Nadell's, uh, opinion and, and I, I wanted to, you know, I actually shared a chapter with him going into it and he kind of made a couple of just minor corrections to tell me about, but he taught me a lot of things just even over the summer, um, you know, coming into this season, you know, he's, he basically said he's, he's wanting to see what it's like this year, uh, with, with this pitch clock and, and with the shift being taken away and, and, rightfully so. I think he maybe wants to see like which way he wants to end his career. You know, he's, he's winding down his career and, uh, thinking, you know, am I going to go out with, you know, if I'm on the cusp of, of this being, you know, the shift going away and us being on a, on a sped up game. So am I going to leave before going over the hill on that cusp, you know, or am I gonna, am I gonna, you know, basically see it out? And that's what he's doing. He's seeing it through and, and I'm sure that, you know, the Rangers are actually doing not, oh, oh, pretty well this year. And uh, I'm sure that it's it's a challenge he's been accepting and, and enjoying uh, as well.
1: I mentioned Rick Generette. And um, uh, way back in 1993, uh, I had made my first communion and um, had some money. And I said to my dad, can we go to the Sabres game? There they they was going to be game four of the playoffs against the Bruins. And the they, Sabres had never... Well, they had passed the first round in 1982. I was two. Kind of really started watching hockey at three. Um, so they had never been to the second round of the playoffs since I've been a fan. And they had a chance to, to clinch it, you know. And so he said, sure, let's let's go down and see if we can get a ticket, whatever. We got standing room only tickets at the Old Odd. Um, and I, But I couldn't see the ice. I couldn't see. I, I was too small to see above the the, the counter of the standing room. So I sat on the top seat, the top stair in the Oranges in the Odd all night, and Brad May scores the goal in overtime after a three-goal comeback in the third period. Sabres had to come back in the third to uh, force overtime, and Brad May scores the legendary goal. And I remember walking back to the car with my dad and looking, turning to each other. I don't know who said it first and saying, I can't wait to hear Jennerette's call of that goal. Like, it was, like, the first thing on our minds when we got out of the arena. Like, I wonder what Jennerat did with that goal. It's going to be so cool. And we were about two blocks from my house when finally WGR 55 replayed it. And we heard it for the first time and just looked at each other and thought, wow. (laughs) You know, wow. And that's really, like, in terms of Buffalo sports, that's the iconic that's the most iconic call of any Buffalo sports moment there is. And I was really excited when you wrote about it in the Voices of Hockey Book. And Pete Weber, who's a, who's a great friend, has been on the show many times, um, talked about at the call and Jennerette's call. Um, and, and that's just kind of for me, if anyone says, you know, what's the what's the call, a sports call that you, you think of or love, it's, it's Mayday. And I think a lot of people here would say the same thing. That's kind of my story about a call. Do you have a story about a call that resonates <laughs> for you like that?
0: Well, I mean, I have a story about a call from when I actually used to enjoy the NFL, and it's Al Michael, Al Michaels, you know, on Mm -hmm. Super Bowl forty-three with Roethlisberger finding Antonio Holmes in the corner. I
1: remember it very well.
0: And just, just the, just the grapple, you know, not the grapple, the gravel, (laughs) in Al Michaels' voice coming out in that, and it's caught for a touchdown, you know, and
1: and it was great job by him because that was such a tight play. And yes. he didn't hesitate. You know, he went with it and nailed it.
0: I, you know, I think I think that is the discipline uh, of broadcasters, and just you know, branching off that, going back to baseball, uh, that is the discipline right there. And and uh, I'll give a perfect example because it's in the it's in the voices of baseball, and it wasn't in the original edition. But Ken Korak calling the Jeter flip in two thousand one. Uh, against the A's, you know, probably one of the most unforeseen plays that you can ever have in baseball. A shortstop running across in a, in a yeah, position. I, I still can't believe field,
1: it. Yeah, I still can't believe it. Part
0: of the field he had no business being right. in and makes that play. And you're a Ken Korak who is calling for the opposing team, the Oakland A's, A's, that's where your discipline comes in because you want to make that call. You want to plate – jeremy giambi on that game on that on that hit you want to plate him there and have him there but something has to you know pull you back you have to have that range of discipline and that's what happened was he held back he you know obviously there was a part of him that just the fan in him maybe or just you know he's on a radio broadcast he's not under any he's on a home radio broadcast for the, the affiliate for the a's you know just <laughs> it's not like he's Bound by any national, you know, broadcasting or FCC regulations of biasness, and he holds, and he and he, and he doesn't call it, and it turns out to be the right call in not doing that because it, you know, going the other way. Obviously, it's still a great call. It's one of the two calls uh for the A's that they just hate. <laughs> <laughs> two, two moments in A's history that they right. hate the other being the uh, Kirk Gibson, yeah, <laughs> which is also featured in the book. So it's like. It's like there's very in depth chapters. I, I don't know how much Oakland Athletics fans are going to enjoy my book because there's practically like a whole section of a chapter and a whole chapter dedicated to the two most infamous moments in Oakland a- A's history. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, the sports guest is here with Kirk McKnight having a blast here. The voices of baseball, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on Americans' pastime. An updated edition um, is available. It's, the updated edition is officially available now, correct? It is okay. You can get it anywhere. Yep. Okay. I knew the date was close, but okay. Um, so it's available anywhere you can get it. But I don't want you to forget his other book, the hockey book. And I want to ask you one more thing about it, uh, because growing up here, I was a big, big Sabres fan, of course. But as a New York Italian, half <laughs> of my family, half of my family is in New York City, and half of the family came to Buffalo. So all the people that came from Italy, that's how they split. So I've always been fascinated with New York City. You know, they live in Staten, Italy, most of them now, you know. Um, so I was always a Rangers fan and a fan of New York sports and New York culture and all those things as much as I was Buffalo. And 1994, is such an iconic year. And I love the 1994 NHL playoffs and the 1994 Stanley Cup. I was a big Pavel Burre fan, too. But the 94 Rangers call is super unique. The the No More 1940, when they finally break the curse, it's such a unique call because there's so many iconic voices behind, has a call of it, right? You have... Gary Thorne called it for national broadcast TV, right? You had Marv Albert making what is essentially the last hockey call he ever made, one of the last hockey calls he ever made. You have Rosen making a call. You know, there was so many legendary voices making the call. And I was so happy uh, reading your book to see that you kind of talked about that, how it's a, it's a moment described by many different people, whether it be Marv Albert or Rosen or whoever. Um, and it's a memory and a moment that I have, we did a, I did a podcast a couple of years ago with um, a writer from the, uh, from the uh, daily news. Who's now with the league offices. And uh, we did an hour just on the devil series and the, and the cup and just kind of talked about 94 It's super fun. But what about the, the Rangers 94 call and, and, and the big, big last thing about hockey, then we'll do a couple more on baseball and then I'll let you go. But. Um yeah, what a moment, huh? I mean, whether it be Marv Albert, you want to go there, you want to go Gary Thorne, you want to go Rosen, whatever guy. Um, great calls at that moment by
0: legends. Well, it's like it's like Gary Thorne called it the, and and obviously we just barely saw the Hudson River rivalry renewed just last night. Yeah, you know, game seven game was seven. last night, yeah. And uh, you know, uh basically, you know, Gary Thorne called it hell bent for leather. <laughs> Which is a great term.
1: Yeah, it's good. Um,
0: and and talking with Marv Albert, I'm going to rewind a little bit because I want to I want to stress just how amazing a moment it is talking with somebody like Marv Albert so many years after the fact, and not just talking about the Stanley Cup because obviously that was uh, a huge moment for New York sports, uh, especially in hockey, as you know, as the Islanders had their heyday you know, in the, in the late 70s and the 80s and everything like that, and returning the glory back to the Rangers' original six team. But going back even farther in time, when Marv Albert, at the beginning of his career, was having to schlep for airtime on a country music radio station just to get a little bit of Rangers playoff or Rangers hockey on the radio. I mean, he's basically going to country music stations out in the sticks, seeing if they can air their broadcast of the of the Rangers. And if you can imagine a, a world in which somebody like Marv Albert is going to a country music station, asking for airtime, that is where you bring yourself to in this moment in 94, where, you know, going through all the mud, going through the trenches, going through everything that you have to go through, the dog days, whatever it is, the heartaches. And now you're broadcasting the first Stanley Cup championship in what was it, fifty-four years?
1: Yep, forty to ninety-four. Yep.
0: Yep. So there so there you have it. And you and, and, and so we're talking about this moment at least twenty five years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and it's still a moment, you know, and and thinking of, of of that road that led to that, you just sit there and give pause and think, Oh my gosh, this guy really has been from the dregs to the to the top of the keg kind of thing when it comes to what he's had to put up with in his broadcasting career to being one of the greatest broadcasters uh you know in the history of sports.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too. I was thinking about this the other night. The Leafs 1967 is the new 1940, right? Because the Leafs drought is mm-hmm. from 67. So it's at 53 years. The Rangers broke theirs at 54. Be interesting to see if the Leafs can break theirs this year. Hopefully not, uh, (laughs) because certainly I have no Leafs fan. But um... (laughs) well, I
0: mean, let's talking like we can stay on hockey because I'm, you know, I'm I'm all about just uh, just how amazing it was on Sunday to not only see a team that won sixty five games go down in the first round. Yeah,
1: I still can't believe it. But to see the
0: reigning champs and last year's President Trophy same night, yeah losing seven to a team that basically was kicking their season off in the same year that that team was you know ending their own kind of stanley cup drought for i think it was what 20 years yeah 2001 2001 was yeah so a, yeah. you know 20 21 years so yep. um just to see both those two game sevens in the same day that's why you gotta love playoff hockey
1: <laughs> yeah yeah unbelievable um they've had a great playoffs so far Um, the ratings have been really good which makes me happy I think that McDonough and Kenny are both really sort of building into their spots as kind of the split number ones whatever network you're watching you know I grew up with Gary Thorne as kind of the national number one then we went to Doc Emmerich and it's interesting now because with the two networks the way the package is split up you have the two guys whether it be McDonough who really loves hockey and you know, really pushed to be that guy. You know, McDonough is the play-by-play number one there because he wanted to be, you know, and he pushed hard to to be considered and ultimately get it, which I think is so important for hockey. When someone is passionate about it, I think it's the best. You know, and cutty's a hockey guy through and through and has done a great job for TNT. So, and I think both of those being in their second year, I think they're kind of catching their stride. And I've really enjoyed the playoffs, even though it's another year without the Sabres, although I think it'll be the last year for a while that they're not in it um uh they're right there and they missed miss by one point oh you can't get any closer than that so uh we'll see but yeah it's been a great plus. who do you who do you like going forward you gotta you gotta if we got a we new we're gonna have a new champ one way or another and we're gonna have someone i think the devils are the most recent champion left in oh three <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, i think that was- let me let me think about that real quick i think that's right i think it's the Devils. So. We're going to either have a first-timer or someone who hasn't won in 20 years or more. Panthers have, have never won. 67 for the Leafs. Obviously, the Kraken haven't won. The Stars is, um, what was it, uh, 90, 99, 99 against the Sabres. Yep, 99 for them. Devils, 03. Hurricanes, oh, Hurricanes is the most Hurricanes recent. Hurricanes, 06. 06. Uh, the Oilers won last in 1990 with Messier, and the Golden Knights have never won, so...
0: Well, I'm I'm actually from Las Vegas and uh, you know, before I moved to Arizona I was there in Vegas when opening night with the Golden Knights, so you know, my heart goes out to the Knights in this situation. Uh, but I honestly like if I'm if I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but unless the Golden Knights can learn to speed up their skates, they're not gonna make it through Edmonton. And I, I can't imagine any team playing Edmonton speed right now. But again, it's the playoffs and uh that you know it, it's 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 all about matchups the golden Knights definitely are not any speed that compares to the Edmonton Oilers and they have the ability to jump on them now whether or not they can do that to other teams is in a whole other situation so you know as a Knights fan I was hoping for the Kings to pull off sure the uh, upset against Edmonton but looking looking forward you know now now that I see you know the the the, the chips where they are I, I I still see those two as my Especially now that Boston's been kind of knocked out, I see, I see those two as the ones that are the teams to beat as far as winning the cup this year.
1: Who's that? Edmonton and who else? Edmonton
0: and the Knights, yeah. And the
1: Knights. Oh, okay. So you think and, whoever and that's wins? That's why I hate this playoff. This series, yeah, this, yeah. The format sucks. It's the ridiculous.
0: Format is, I mean, this was when the when the Penguins and the, the Capitals were playing each other in the yeah. second round, and the Leafs and the Lightning have year. just went
1: through it as well every right. year. Yeah, Leafs and Lightning every right. year. Yeah.
0: And so this format is awful because you're thinking these should be the conference finals and then the conference semifinals.
1: Yeah, the, the format sucks. I think the Knights would have a great chance, but unfortunately, they're saddled with that cancer and piss pot Jack Eichel. So I don't, I don't see him <laughs> ever winning anything. So I, I mean, I, look at I liked the Knights for the first couple of years. Now I just I don't, you know, I've never, never hated a player as much as Jack Eichel. So good luck with that. But um,
0: well, I I love Alex Tuck. And so Yeah, I oh and he's uh, been
1: fantastic up I, here.
0: I remember before the Knights even played their first game, you know, my buddy and I we had season tickets and we were kind of going place to place and just anything that there was Knights related like the rookie camp. We went to this little uh, ice rink that wasn't, you know, it was before they even built their uh, practice rink over there in City National Arena on the Summerlin side of Las Vegas and we're sitting there at this ice rink that's that doubles as a as a hockey bar. Where you can actually watch the games from from the hockey bar, and I'm looking and I'm like, look at the size of that guy, and it was Alex Tuck, and I, I just thought, my gosh, you know, and when you look at his skill level with his size, I really did feel it would have to take somebody as as the you know at the at the level of Jack Eichel for me to be okay with getting rid of Tuck.
1: Yeah, and I think in the end, you're not going to be okay with it. Um. <laughs> Especially when you look at the totality of the trade, too. Um, yeah. Peyton oh. Krabs had a really fantastic season for us as well. Um, you know, and just, I don't know. You'll find out about Eichel. You'll see. Oh,
0: well, when I see everything that we gave up in order to get Max Pacioretty, including giving up a player that we had already given up so much to get in as uh, with Tomas Tatar, uh, to see Max Pacioretty basically kind of just unloaded uh, i was very embittered last year and um not knowing how the golden knights were going to come out of that and they did a pretty good job this year it's amazing what happens when you dump a crap goalie and robin leonard
1: yeah big loud mouth too thinks he got to be in everyone's business tell everyone what to do and look at how he lives yep um, i
0: always said if you're gonna do i said if you're gonna do that if you're gonna sit there and use your thumbs on the internet, you better be able to back it up on the ice. And right, he clearly didn't.
1: And he's never on the ice to back it up. Yep. Anyway, and now he isn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the voices of baseball, the greatest, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect in America's pastime. Kirk McKnight's the author, and what I love about this book and the hockey book, which we talked about a lot, which is basically the same title, but the voices of hockey um, is you can put this on the toilet if you like to read there, and I often do, and you can pick it up as you sit down and read any chapter you know, they're all kind of self-contained in a way. Um, and if you feel like reading about the rays or Tropicana park, you can do that. You know, if you feel like reading, I don't, I mean, I don't know if that would be the number one choice, but that's what I opened it to. <laughs> <laughs> if like you said, you want to read about the A's and sort of the infamous moments that we talked about here, you can do that on page 43, whatever you can go where you want. You go to 43 for the A's or two forty-three for the Yankees. It doesn't matter. And I love books that lend themselves to that kind of reading. Um, So I recommend the baseball book for sure since it's out now. And while you're at it, grab the hockey book. You might as well um, because it's fantastic as well. So many great stories about stadiums and arenas and broadcasters and history. We could only touch the surface today. But, Kirk, thanks so much for doing it. Do you have any questions for me?
0: Um, Who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup? Okay.
1: Who do I think? You know, I will say, and I wasn't trying to be the smartest guy in the room or anything, but I was concerned entering the playoffs that when something goes as good as it does, like the regular season did for the Bruins, I always worry that disaster is waiting on their side. Like in 2007, when the Sabres won the President's Trophy, I knew we weren't going to win the Stanley Cup. Everything, it just went too well. You know, it just seems seems like when your first adversity is in the Stanley Cup playoffs, that's an issue. You know, you need adversity over the course of the year. And there's a team I like. I think they have really great goaltending. I think their, the path to the cup might not be as difficult as some others. They have high-end scoring. Uh, their leader, Jamie Benn, has sort of emerged from a bad couple of years, having a great season. I love Dallas. I think Dallas yeah. is going to be a really tough out. Their goaltending's fantastic. You know, one of the best defensemen cool. in the league. They have high-end scoring on their top line. Like I said, Ben with depth. Um You know, I just I just love their path now. You know, uh, with getting to play the Kraken, you know, you hope that Vegas and Edmonton sort of beat the crap out of each other. Uh, They've already proven they can sort of go toe to toe with Edmonton a little bit, especially from the speed standpoint and the top lines. Um, So I really like Dallas in the East. um, I love Lindy's Devils too for the same reason. They just can skate and skate and skate and skate, and I think there's a little bit of naivety there. Um, that will help them, you know, that they're just so sort of young and, and, and you know, Hughes is so dynamic and and they can skate and skate. I mean, they just skated the Rangers out of the playoffs last night, mm-hmm. you know, but we've also seen the inconsistency of the youth. You know, they gave up five goals three times twice at home, you know, so they're vulnerable. Um, I think Florida could make a run now that they've gotten past Boston, but of course, the scariest team. Now now that they've gotten over the hump is the Leafs, I think, are really scary. Mm. With one caveat being was getting out of the first round their cup. Did they invest so much emotional and so much emotional energy and, and energy in general, physical, emotional, all of that, all the pressure just to get through the lightning? Are they sort of gassed now? Do they have anything left? Or will it, <laughs> will it be like Washington when they finally got through Pittsburgh, sort of just propelled them? to the cup so we'll see but i don't know maybe toronto or dallas are probably the teams i would if i had to go to vegas and put a slip on a team in each conference those would be probably be the two mm.
0: well that's interesting because i i if anything, I learned from this first round, you just don't know what to expect. And uh, no, yeah, I prepared
1: to be completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, who
0: who would have known in their right mind that a team that had won sixty five sixty five games, games. Oh and my was God. up three games to one and was up three games to one? That's something people are not stressing enough, as they were up three games to one as well. So, and Florida that, needed
1: the heroics of Alex Lyon. Florida needed Alex Lyon to emerge from the AHL to save them. Just to get in the playoffs.
0: <laughs> That's why I love playoff hockey. Right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Unbelievable. I love baseball too, but like baseball right now is taking a little bit of backseat. You know, because it's so playoff I know time. They, you know, I the teams are time. positioning themselves. Yeah. You know, the Pirates are hot, and the, the Rays are really hot, and I think the Rays will probably stay hot because they're a really good team. But that AL think, East
1: is nasty, huh? Holy hell! I think,
0: I think the Pirates may have a, a little bit of a decline here sooner or later i think uh, i think the 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 reality of it all is going to start to catch up yeah i can pl- see that once teams start settling in yep the way they're supposed to but I'm, I'm i'm happy that the pirates are doing so well same uh, it's
1: such a beautiful ballpark such a great place for baseball Right, you know they should and have. And Greg
0: Brown is a great broadcaster, and he's a really good guy. And I hope for him to always have success in anything that he's doing because he loves what he does. Same thing with the broadcasters for the Rays. Same thing with so many broadcasters I talk to; they just love what they do, and you're happy for them, even if they're, even if what you call your team is is not necessarily winning against them. You're you're also thinking, oh, you know what? These guys are having a great time and having the time of their lives.
1: One more plug: the voices of baseball. The game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime by Kirk McKnight. You can find Kirk on Twitter at the voices of MLB for more information. Uh, the, you know, links to where you can buy the book, but of course, you know, anyone with a brain just go to Amazon or wherever you buy books, you'll find it there. Ebooks, of course, as well. If you, you like to read on Apple on your iPhone or whatever, you can do that or Kindle. Um, is there an audiobook?
0: Uh, Not yet, we're working on that
1: Okay, working on the audiobook Anything else you want to plug or mention, Kirk, before I let you go? Uh,
0: No, just that if you guys uh, If they were to get the book on the publisher's website That's Roman with a W-R-O-W-M-A-N dot com Okay There's a a coupon code you can use and save 30% And that gets you about $11 cheaper than Amazon So the the coupon code is R-L-F-A-N-D-F-30 Beautiful. Thank you for that.
1: So go to the publisher's site, hit in that code, and you save eleven bucks. Can't beat that. And the book itself is beautiful. I mean, the aesthetically speaking, it's a really nice hardcover book with a beautiful picture of Vin Scully and it just it feels nice and it's a really nice it's a nice piece of physical media, you know, which I still appreciate.
0: I, I think people would look at the book and say, Oh, this is the Dodgers book, and it's really not. It's more of a tribute to Vin. Uh, all, all 30 teams are represented, but this is definitely a tribute to Vin. There's a whole chapter on Vin at the back where you got 35 broadcasters paying homage to him. And, and that was about awesome. Some of, and yep. some of the tops in the game, you know, you got doc Emrick and Marv Albert even included in that list of people talking about Vin. So, uh, it is, it is an absolute tribute to Vin and the color of the book is Dodger blue. That's just a, a nod to him as well. So you know, you got him from his days in Brooklyn to his days here. And, uh, you know, but you also got 29 other teams that are definitely well represented as well, with 48 other broadcasters, basically. You know, we got two, talk, two, two broadcasters talking the Dodgers and 48 other broadcasters talking the other 29 teams.
1: And I highlighted this quote from Marv Albert in the book There are so many excellent baseball play by play announcers throughout the country, but Vin Scully will always be remembered. As the best of all time, and that's Marv Albert saying that. So that's pretty good praise.
0: It is definitely. <laughs> all and right, Marv, Let me yeah, tell you what. Sure. I, I emailed. I emailed Marv two days after Scully passed away because I the, the that next day after Scully passed away, I was on the phone with my editor and saying, "Can I please try to do something here while you're editing the rest?" Because the manuscript went in the night before. The manuscript went in on August first. Scully passes away on August 2nd. August 3rd, I'm on the phone with the editor asking if I can please try to put together something. She says you have two weeks. I email immediately to all my contacts. And within a couple hours, Marv Albert has this whole beautiful thing uh, written up about Scully. So that's just that just is what Scully means to the broadcasting community.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, I absolutely enjoyed this so much. I hope we sold some books. Again, the Voices of Baseball the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime. Kirk McKnight, please come back. Let's do it again and talk about sports some more and broadcasters for sure. I will. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Kirk McKnight. And Jack Curry for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this episode of the Sportscasters and all hundreds of our episodes on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can also still find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, please get in touch with me there if you'd like. I always like to interact with people on email. Uh, don't forget the 24-inch podcast at 24 podcast is the Twitter 24 inch gmail.com. we got a new episode about WrestleMania 6 coming out later in the week looking forward to recording that with Hollywood Dave and Paula don't forget to check me out and Paula as well this week on the North South Connection the the chrono uh the chronology project I always have the name wrong on that but uh, we just put out it up they just put an episode if you go to the North South Connection feed uh, and you go down and you look for Chronoso uh, you'll find the latest episode, and Paul and I uh, did some stuff on Saturday's main event uh, there. All right. One last thing for me tonight, and I'm not going to go on super long about this. I'm not going to make a huge grandstanding point about it. I'm just going to kind of get in and, in and out, and I'm going to get my feelings, and if you'd like to counter them or disagree or agree, you can email me, like I said, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Ted Lasso sucks. Uh, Ted Lasso was an amazing, amazing success story when it debuted in season one. It was charming, it had heart, it was lovable. I loved to watch it. The episodes were amazing. There was some important stories being told, and being told tastefully, with class. And it was wonderful, a wonderful show, a hit. Apple TV had a hit. They turned a commercial, a joke at a commercial, into one of the best sitcoms in years. It was so good, so good. And then season two came out, and for the first time, because they didn't have it in season one, uh, there was some pressure they had to live up to, right? There was there was something else there. The The, the show had become popular. And they had a right to that instead of, you know, a few people watching when it debuted, millions were watching. And it wasn't as good as season one, but season one was one of the best episodes in the history of television. So that was it didn't need to be as good as season one, but it was still very good. And there were some moments once in a while, maybe I roll my eyes, but for the most part, it was pretty good. Some of the stuff with Ted and his panic attacks, eh. It was a good. It was a good season, and it had me excited for season three, and I waited and waited and waited and waited for this thing to come out, and I started to hear things like Jason Sudeikis has went into the writers' room and rewrote all the scripts, and um, it's that's why it's taking so long, and there's arguments with Apple. They wanted to be uh, Sudeikis wants to be the last season because it was always meant to be three seasons, but. Apple obviously wants more because it's a huge hit and there's always been this ambiguity about whether or not it's going to keep going or if this is the last season. I still don't know for sure uh, what it is. I guess it's the last season. Um, and finally, it, it, it finally it arrived a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now. And of course, Apple doesn't release them at once. Right. They release them one at a time. So if, if you want look at I, I have Apple TV as part of a greater bundle. Uh, because I it's a family plan, and me, my brothers, my mom, we all use Apple Music and Apple TV and extra storage for our phones. So we have it anyway uh, as part of a bigger bundle. It basically comes for free with our music package. If you want to look at it that way, you know everyone's got Spotify or Apple Music or something. We have Apple Music, and since we have family anyway, we get the bigger bundle. And we have this, but if you just subscribe because you love Ted Lasso, you have to subscribe for a couple months because. Uh, they're gonna put all these twelve episodes or whatever it is one a week, so it's three months it's gonna take to put them out. Uh, and they're and, and the first thing you notice is they're very long. They're the first season they were between twenty and thirty five minutes, like twenty five at the low and thirty five at the high. And this season I think like it's forty at the low and fifty at the high. Uh, and so they're very bloated episodes, and it's horrible. It is just awful. It's a soccer show completely void of soccer. They totally botched the heel turn of Nate. Like, they wanted him to be heel. Now they, and, and there are some spoilers here. I, they're not going to go crazy with spoilers because, to be honest, I've only watched four of the episodes from this season, and I'm never watching another episode again. I'm done with it. It's horrible. I, I hate to use the word woke, but I don't know a better one. It's incredibly, ridiculously left wing these ridiculous storylines with keely who has somehow become like the biggest character on the show like she's gay now i guess um which whatever but they spent the first two seasons talking about her love life with men now she's pivoted to to females including the female who backed her business which i don't care about but is like the centerpiece of every show There's some stuff about immigration in England, which I don't really understand or want to know about. It's super political. Um, Everyone in the show, their sexuality is like the most important thing about them. There's no soccer. It stinks. It just stinks. It's not enjoyable. There's no heart anymore. Uh, Ted is annoying it's just uh just the worst and I loved this show and it's just it's not any good so that's the end of the road for Ted Lasso and I and like you know about wrestling and Howard Stern sometimes I love things and then they evolve to a place that I just don't want to exist in anymore and that's okay and maybe I'm the one who's crazy maybe I'll get it 50 emails saying, what? That's the Season 3 of Ted Lasso is like the best season of TV since season 4 of The Wire. Maybe I'll get that. I don't know. I just know it's not for me, so I'm moving on. I I can't even struggle through the last six episodes or whatever it is. Maybe when the last episode comes out, if they say this is the definitive end of Ted Lasso, maybe I'll watch it to see how they end the show. Uh, But I don't need to, to, to follow the journey to get there. I'm out, and that's okay. Um, and if you still love it, that's okay. No hard feelings or anything like that. Um, and if you find the storylines to be engaging, and if you can relate to them, and if you th- if if for you, when you watch a show, the mo- most important thing about a character is their sexuality. Ted Lasso's for you. Um, but if soccer in a soccer show is what you want, no. If you want the story of the coach from America who applies his in, just believe and his inspiration and and, and and getting a team to promotion as they did back in the Premier League and now can they win the whole fucking thing? I, that just doesn't seem to be the story they're telling. I don't know what the story they're telling is, but it doesn't interest me and I'm out. And that's okay. And you know, if someday I get the itch to see Ted again, I can see myself watching that first season again, because it's so damn lovable. It's so great. So many great moments. Season three, it's just not for me.